think it happens a lot, right? When you're in nature, it just sort of nature, once you walk off your, you know, whatever current thoughts are in your head, you're able to empty all that out and then be present. You just enter the flow and you lose time and you go into soft focus. Everything becomes very, you're seeing everything, but it's all very soft focused around you. And then, and then you get all that magic, right? So the little mushrooms pop up and you see the, you know, mushrooms you've been hunting for, they kind of call you, you know, the little chicken of the woods and the, you know, the beautiful cauliflower mushrooms or, you know, they just, that's happened so many times when I'm just walking in the woods and it, I always, it takes me a while. It's not like I just step in and then my mind is empty and I'm in the flow and I have to walk. I usually, it's walking, you know, if I walk long enough, I leave behind my thoughts. And once I leave behind my thoughts, I'm present. I'm really present with where I'm at. Welcome to the Art and Life podcast with your host, Taylor Gallegos. Art exists all around us, in all directions, from all walks of life. We just need to know how to see it. The Art and Life podcast is an experiment in an audio format that focuses on the art and philosophy involved with different people and their life paths. This experiment is intended to inspire you in your creative pursuits, whatever they may be. Follow along as I interview movers and shakers from all walks of life. It's possible to make a life from your art, skill, craft, or vision. These interviews showcase that fact. Listen while you work. Listen while you create. Listen while you dream up the next big breakthrough. First off, I want to say thank you for listening. The people being interviewed and I are two parts of the podcast, but it wouldn't be complete without you, the listener. I very much appreciate your attention and your energy, and I hope you get as much out of this as I do. If you enjoy what you hear, you can join me on this artistic journey in many ways. You can subscribe to the show, leave a review, and share it around. You can join the conversation on the Art and Life Facebook group, where we discuss topics from the shows. You can join my email list on my website at taylorgallegosart.com on the contact page. And while you're there, check out the new artwork I've been creating. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at taylorgallegosart. And finally, you can support my art and the Art and Life podcast on my Patreon page. Just search Taylor Gallegos Art. So again, a deep and sincere thank you for being here. Now, on to the good stuff. And welcome to the podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Taylor Gallegos. This is Art and Life. And today with me, I have an extremely special guest. I've, I've said special before, and I always mean it, but this is extra special. Uh, today with us, we have a legend here in, in our midst with uh, a legend in the world of herbalism and um, all sorts of things that we're going to dive into. So we'll just get right to it. 
Rosemary Gladstar, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. This is great. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Uh, we had a couple of couple uh, times where we were going to meet up, but it didn't work out. And here we are. And now it's the magic time. So um, why don't you start by telling us who you are, where you're from, how you got to where you're at, and what it is that you do with your life? Oh, that's a lot. Yeah. So uh, in five, <laughs> five minutes or less. Um, so my name is Rosemary Gladstar, and I'm a practicing herbalist and author. Um, I currently live and have lived for the last 30, almost 35 years in Vermont which I love, but I originally was from California, Northern California, actually. I grew up um, at a little dairy farm in Sonoma County, right, right next to Sebastopol. So that's actually where I began my herbal work. And um, yeah, I was sort of, I was, I would say one of the lucky ones. I was introduced to herbalism as a young child through my grandmother and uh, just had a deep love of nature and the plants ever since I was young. So I've sort of followed this path and it's many windings and turns my entire life, which has been a real blessing for me, actually. You know, it's, I'm one of those people that can say it was far more fun and, and less work. And I have loved, just loved working with the plants and also love working with people who love plants. Feel fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. And so... I mean, one thing that you did early on was start an apothecary in Sebastopol, correct? Yeah, actually in 1972, I opened up my, well, it was, truthfully, it was going to start out as a little home apothecary. I was actually going to open it up in my home because there wasn't access to herbs back in the 70s. Very, there was one other herb store in Northern California, actually in San Francisco, um, but I lived up such a long windy road. It was actually on the Russian River and it was just, there was no parking or anything. So we ended up opening, um, I rented a small corner of the Burnville Natural Food Store and I started my herb store in there. And it went through several incarnations. It, it um, grew from the little corner that it was in, took over half the store and then eventually had its own building. And then I moved, made the last move where it still is now is in Sebastopol, the little main street of the town that I grew up in. So yeah, that was quite a long time ago. 1972 was when I opened that first store. And really, it's so incredible because it's still there on the main street of Sebastopol. <laughs> yeah, Haley and I visited it uh, a couple of years ago. And then there's the, um, there's the herbalism school that's there. Uh, and did you start that one also? Yeah, I did in 19, I think it was like 1986. I, I sometimes get my dates a little confused because it's going back quite a bit in history now. But yeah, again, there weren't any other operating herb schools in the United States. There was a wonderful home study course in Canada offered by one of the wise old elders, a woman named Ella Bresnik. But really, all the herb schools in the United States had closed in the 1940s. I think the last one was closed. It was actually a, a school for eclectic doctors at that time. And that closed in the 1940s, actually right before World War II. And so, you know, it was just, again, with that desire to want to make herbalism available to people. So I started a little school, uh, which rapidly grew to be a very well-known school. And it, it has, it's still in operation. Um, and it's still really known, well, it's known as the longest running herb school, but definitely one of the better herb schools in the, in the country. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, real quick, why did they, like, why did they shut down in the 40s or going into the 40s? 
Well, because, you know, that was really about the time modern medicine um, really took a big hold in this country. Well, I would say right around the turn of the century, quite honestly, you know, there was a lot of advancements made. But um, it was really in the in the beginning of the 1900s or the 20th, well, around 19, it was in, yeah, around the beginning of the 1900s that um, uh, the eclectic, doc, the, the medical institution at that time, the AMA, basically had laws passed that made all the other uh, types of healing illegal. They had, at that point, it had to be sanctioned by the government to be accepted. And so all these other schools were closing down. And there were reasons for that, by the way, that were some very, very good reasons. And as often happens, some not so good reasons. Unfortunately, what ended up happening is there kind of became a monopoly on medicine. So many of the traditional systems of healing that were quite well established were no longer acceptable. So it basically became illegal to practice herbalism as a healing art. Wow. Yeah, it's been illegal actually since. Uh, yeah, well, I forget the exact date, but for over a hundred years. <laughs> wow. And this is, I mean, that encompasses like making a tea for somebody to help with a cold. Yeah, it's not the making of a tea. I mean, so we can make herbal products and, and that's, you know, of course, when you talk about selling products, there's a whole nother set of rules. So commerce is very different than healing. Um, hopefully so, they're kept separate, not always, but they should be. Um, uh, but it was just the practice. So it's recommending. So you can give a tea to somebody, but you can't recommend, you can't say this is good for your tummy, for instance, or this is good for your headache. You can't imply um, in the legal sense of the word, in the strictest sense of the word, you can't apply that these herbs are going to do a human being good, which is quite interesting considering that herbalism is the oldest system of healing on the planet and also the most universal. And even today, considered by worth the World Health Organization to still be the primary system of healing. But we're one of the few countries in the world, there are a couple other where it's illegal to practice herbal medicine without a license. You know, you have to be, you have to be licensed by the government, which is tricky because it's not really recognized as a valid human as a valid healing system. So <laughs> yeah, like there aren't there aren't governmental herbalism schools that are sanctioned. Are there? No, you can study to be a naturopathic doctor. And in some states, thankfully, naturopaths are licensed, but not all states in the United States do not recognize doctors who have been trained just as much as allopathic doctors, allopathy being the modern term for, for a medical doctor. Um, and you can practice as a, you can be a medical doctor. And if you train in herbs, you can, you know, you can apply them. So long as it falls the way the law is written, so long as it falls within the scope of your practice. So there's a little catch 22 there as well. It's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> it gets more complicated when you go, but aren't there thousands of herbalists practicing? And there are, but we practice under the radar or we practice through learning a language that doesn't endanger, you know, so you can always say that, you know, traditionally these herbs were used or, I'm not diagnosing, you want to talk to your doctor, but this, these might be things that would be helpful. So you just have to be mindful of your language and how, you're, how you can help other people. That's really what you have to be careful of. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it then- It stopped us. 
no, no. And uh, I mean, people are still interested in it. And it's so, uh, like you said, it's like the longest running medical element in human history. Like plants have been helping with healing for forever. So uh, why don't you talk a little bit about just the healing properties of plants? Like, how does it all work? Oh, yeah, well, I mean, there's many levels. You know, we, we, most herbalists who work with plants work with them on a very physical level. And many work also with on, on them through a recognition that they are a living life form. You know, they grow, they receive sunlight, they transform that into energy, they make chemicals, they make vitamins and minerals. So on a physical level, they work through, you know, a, they're comprised of thousands of different chemicals, some in high concentrations, other in very minor ones, very much like a human body is comprised of so many different cells and blood, et cetera. Plants have every bit as much complexity. And many of those chemicals have a physical reaction on the body. So for instance, if a plant is high in tannins, this is just one simple example, it's going to have astringent tannins like tighten and tone blood vessels and tissue. So those plants are going to have, all of them have the ability to heal wounds by, by firming up the skin. Um, they're called bolinaries. Bul they help with drying excess mucus because that's what astringents do, right? They can use topically. And so, so there's this physical components, you know, some herbs are high in chemical constituents, sometimes compounds, bioflavonoids, anthocyanines that are really good for the heart. So physically, they're going to have a reaction. So there's, and that actually, there's been a lot of research and studies, say, in the last 40, 50 years, not so much in the United States, but lots in Asia, Southeast Asia, Japan, Russia, and then throughout Europe, especially Germany. Germany has, is, you know, miles ahead of doing plant studies in the United States. So there is a lot of research that comes from around the world that validates this information. Um, and then there's empirical evidence, evidence too, you know, the empirical evidence is just how people have used these plants, sometimes for thousands of years, and sometimes in various parts of the world, and have collected this information because they've actually seen the plants working. That doesn't really explain how they work, but it validates that they do have these chemicals and they're working on the body. But then they also work on a, you know, the energetic level, which is being recognized more and more by science and by the medical profession that energy certainly has a place in healing. And that's a little harder to explain. You have to work with sacred plant medicine, you know, and here I'm not talking about hallucinogens, but just every plant has a, has a spirit or a soul, just like humans do, they're living beings. And so there's a lot of herbalists who work on a very physical plane, but they're also in relationship to the plants. I hope I'm not making this too complicated. Oh, this is great. Yeah, but they just work in relationship with the plants as well. They they see them as friends, they see them as partners, maybe have been working with them for years. And so I would say that that is a big part of how people work with herbs. So certainly the physical, the chemical constituents, their pathways or actions on the different organ systems of the body, all of that's fascinating and interesting. We can validate that by science, but there's also this living life force that's in all living things. Well, it's just as simple as saying, you know, if I was to relate to you as a physical being with just made up of cells and without a consciousness or a soul, it would make you very one-dimensional and flat, right? And yeah, I always explain it to people like this, when you really get to know the plants and you develop a relationship with them, it's like developing a lifetime relationship with a, with a friend. 
the more you know them, the more they're willing to step up for you, the more you can work with them to do things that aren't in books or, you know, weren't researched through the labs and stuff. So, um, so does that, that's a kind of involved answer, but does that answer that for you? No, that was great. Um, and that leads in my, the next question that uh, I want to throw at you here is, um, could you talk a little bit about the concept of plant consciousness? Um, yeah, I mean, you mean the plants, how plants raise our consciousness or how plants are con conscious beings? I guess my thought, my first thought is plants being conscious beings and like what level of consciousness they're at. And yeah. then, uh, I mean, you can dip into the next one. Well, I would say, you know, every, every culture and especially every indigenous culture in the world has a, we mentioned this earlier, has a long relationship with the plants, right? And in fact, I like to like to point this out is that in every, um, every creation story in the world, it doesn't matter where it comes from, whether it's biblical, you know, where God created the heavens and the earth in seven days, or whether it's Native American stories about Turtle Island, you know, rising up and, um, or the African traditions, you know, or the East Indian traditions, no matter what tradition it is of how the earth was created, plants always figured before humans. So plants were here long before human beings. So humans have evolved in relationship to the plants. Basically, our lives are physically dependent on plants, really for the air we breathe, because we breathe their outgrowth, right? Or we, we breathe the um, oxygen they create. That's a byproduct of their photosynthesis. And in return, they breathe our carbon dioxide that we breathe out. Our clothing, the shelter, our food, our medicine, you know, the beauty way that we walk, all of that are gifts from the plants. Um, and, 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 so, and they're also very conscious beings. They're ancient beings. They're like in, in the traditional cultures, I started to talk about this, all cultures, again, this is universal in the world. When you study traditions, uh, indigenous cultures, they all related to the plants like they were living beings with consciousness. And we see science recognizing that now. You know, we see these books like uh, The Secret Life of Plants or that beautiful book written by Peter Wallenberg called The Hidden Life of Trees. And these are scientists writing these books, right? These are people who work in, you know, plant studies and botany. And, but just by working with the plants they began to, and working with them intimately, they began to see that they have a life form all of their own and a communication, uh, a communication methods that really equal our own, you know, as far as being able to communicate to the plants around them in a community. So, and we're seeing more and more books. I've done a number of review of books that will be published in the next few months or years of, of um, people who have devoted their life to plants in scientific studies, by the way. So we're, we're not really talking right now about the spiritual uh, cultures that, you know, like the, the shamans and the elders of these people, but these, but they're recognizing this, right? And they're being able to talk about it in this kind of left brain logical way. But even more exciting to me, of course, is the, the indigenous cultures that never needed any convincing. They just, they live with the plants. And when you work and you spend your time with plants, whether you're a gardener, whether you are just a, you know, some kind of environmentalist and out in nature all the time, or an herbalist working in your garden and harvesting your medicine and making medicine, you begin to see that this is a life form, you know, that's every bit as real and lively. It has its own way of communicating. Um, you know, it has its own 
own way of giving medicine, whether it's at that physical level or that spiritual level. And that's where herbal medicine gets really exciting because you begin, you become invited into their world and you get to work with the plants in the way that they really want you to work with them, right? They're, they become the directors almost in how you work with them. And that actually does transfer into that idea. There's also this group of herbs that are, have been considered sacred medicine in all cultures. So again, we see this universal. You know, it's one of the things that humans share as humanity with all of our different races and, um, you know, tribes actually. So in every place in the world, people had very sacred medicine that was usually not in abundance and was never used recklessly or used in a party way, it was always used in a very spiritual way to help usually the shamans, the healers, communicate with God or their great spirit to help them heal their people. And those plants are still available. They've been recklessly abused by modern culture, unfortunately and sadly, um, but they are available and there are still shamans who work with them and do incredible healings with those plants. But every plant has that. They just have it in different levels. The dandelion, the little lowly dandelion is a shamanic practitioner in itself, but you just have to learn to work with its medicine. It's not quite as, you know, apparent if I, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Dandelion root is really good for you. Um, in lots of ways, right? The whole plant, the dandelion root is, you know, on the physical level is considered a really excellent herb for any kind of liver issue, like so stomach stress, uh, slow digestion, sluggish digestion, which is usually translated as some kind of constipation, um, just skin issues. So yeah, dandelion has a long history. Traditionally, it was called an alterative, meaning help to alter the condition of the blood. It's rich in minerals and bitter principles. And then the leaf is also an incredible medicine, um, more often associated with the kidneys, you know, as a kidney cleanser, it's a mild diuretic, very, very high in nutrients. It's like, has more vitamin A than anything you grow in your garden, including parsley, which is, you know, one of the highest sources of vitamin A. And even the little flowers, little flower buds are good food and they're delicious wine and they just brighten the spirits, right? They're so happy to, you're so happy to see. <laughs> And meanwhile, everybody's trying to get them out of their lawn. <laughs> Ortho's cover girl, you know, like Ortho puts her, puts that little dandelion on the front of all of their Ortho ads. And it's, uh, this makes me laugh because dandelion's winning the war. You know, you can spray your yard with dandelion all you want and you might keep them back for a year or two. And when they finally grow, they might be a little lopsided, you know, their little heads on maybe two flowers on a head. They might look a little strange, but they'll be right back. <laughs> And, you know, that's tenacity. You want to you want to look to plants that can do that, you know, any kind of life form that has that kind of tenacity. And is that good? And is that beautiful? Right. Yeah. I do have to say one more thing about about dandelion. Like, um, well, of course, where I grew up in Sonoma County, dandelion grows. It grows everywhere in the temperate regions of the world. And in most parts of the world, it's considered one of the very best medicines. We're probably the only country <laughs> in the world that tries to get rid of dandelion. Right. But. Um, but when I moved from California to Vermont, I felt like I landed in dandelion heaven because I have never seen a place in the world where dandelion grows. I mean, there'll be entire fields just carpeted with those golden little, those yellow um, little dandelion heads in the spring. And then, of course, in the summertime, there's all the seed pods, right, getting ready, the little wish balls getting ready to 
send their millions of little dandelion soldiers out into the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's Quite awesome. Insightful. Yeah, totally. I remember uh, when I got to go to your property when Haley was doing her uh, internship there, I got to visit and you know it's like this magical farm in vermont it's got there's herbs everywhere the little home is just beautiful and there's these little pathways and fairy gardens and all this cool stuff and uh we got to learn about plantain and plantain is really cool because um it's like the little flat leaf thing that grows on the ground and it grows like everywhere and uh, if you get a mosquito bite, you can take the plantain and chew it up in your mouth and then you put it on the mosquito bite and then it like heals it and makes it not itch. Um, <laughs> I thought that was so cool. And like concept <laughs> that, uh, you know, these plants just grow everywhere they're needed, really. Like wherever there's mosquitoes, you're going to find plantain, which is so wild. You were a good student. <laughs> <laughs> that was so cool. Oh, yeah. yeah you know. It's called the boo-boo plant because um, plantain is probably the first plant that children learn. And exactly for that, if you get a you know, mosquito bite or a bee sting, I always tell people, you know, bee sting, unless you're allergic to it, is not an issue. It'll hurt for two or three days. But if you don't want it to hurt for two or three days, you do exactly what you just said. You chew it up, a nice plantain poultice, you put it on there, and it'll hurt for 15 or 20 minutes, and then the swelling is all gone. You can actually, you know, if you have a pretty bad wound or, or a bad infection, you change that poultice several times, it will get black with the toxicity that it's drawing out. It gets hot and black. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing herb. And you're right, it grows all around the world in temperate regions. So these weedy plants that grow near humans that humans work so hard to get rid of, they're some of our most useful plants. Not all of them, but about 98% of them travel to be near people because they're our good medicine. That's why they, colonize near people they like what they like the well they do two things one is they colonize near, near us because we often are wrecking our soil right so these are plants that are often considered warrior plants they come in and they they send down deep roots and they bring in vitamins they raise up the vitamins and the trace minerals from the earth excuse me the minerals pull up that so it's closer to the surface so that it's more available to the plants so they help to heal the soil but they also are some of our best first aid every day, what I call the everyday medicine and often good food. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it is awesome. Yeah. Thanks, plants. Um, <laughs> now, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about um, the overlap of herbalism and, and business and like how it can work in the world. And um, you were, you mentioned that I mean, now it's, there's more like herbalism entrepreneurs, but before there was a lot of just sort of like a negative um, relationship to money and to business. And I feel like that same thing happens in art a lot. A lot of artists sort of see, um, you know, money as like a, a selling out or <laughs> something like that. But uh, I like to think that you can find a happy medium where you can like create business that ends up sustaining yourself and helps the world in general and other people. And I feel like you're an amazing example of that. Um, you know, you've written books, you've done all these different things that have helped like develop and like pave the way for other herbalists. You wanna talk about that a little bit? Yeah, thank you. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think it, it's hard to um, live in the world without 
without money, you know, I mean, it's impossible. Either everybody else is taking care of you or you have the opportunity to take care of others. And so that's one thing that money can do. It allows you to provide, whether that's just for your family or your community or on a bigger scale and to do it with something that's as beautiful as working with plants or art or any of the things that you're really impassioned by that you love that's healthy for the world. I mean, there's just nothing better, right? And what, you know, when I, we were talking a little bit earlier, it's like herbalism started that revival or the Renaissance that's often spoken about in like the late 1960s and the 1970s, primarily by hippies, by people who were trying to get away from what they deemed as kind of the bad parts of society. Um, and so that was part of, part of the, I think our reason where we didn't really want to get involved in, you know, making a lot of money, or I would say more like we didn't want to get jobs where you just had to work and, you know, make, earn your livelihood through jobs that you didn't love. That just didn't resonate with a whole group of us. On the other hand, when you do what you love doing and you're just doing that, you know, purely because you want to be of service in some way, whether it's creating beautiful handiwork or art, clothing, and in, our, in my case, it was just wanting to provide, you know, herbal, good herbs for people and herbal medicine and a healthy, a healthier way to be in the world. Um, and then to see that start to actually make an income was a really wonderful thing because what I could then do is I could provide for myself, but I could build other things. So that's, I went from the store and then I built that school and then I started, you know, another school and a retreat center and all of that would, would have been basically impossible if I wasn't earning right livelihood. So I think that, um, you know, money is like, this is an old adage, of course, it's just a, it's a healthy tool. If you know how to, it's like with any tool, you can cut your arm off and, you know, sever your, sever your head with it, or you can do something really productive, you know, build something really incredible with it. And I'm grateful today to see so many home businesses. I mean, you know, if you go on Etsy, you just see endless home businesses of people doing small herbal products or, you know, cosmetics that they make in their home or chocolates with herbs in it. Like, you know, and it's, it's really beautiful to see that. And um, early on, that wasn't so possible. You know, it took a lot, a lot of work because there weren't as many people interested in plants, but that didn't stop us. You know, we just kept going with it because we loved it. So I think that's the key. You know, you have to feel like what you're doing is something that you love doing and it has to be a value and a service for the earth. You know, you have to be contributing um, to a better planet. So that factors in, but, and then you're, ideally you're rewarded for doing that so that you can um, have good livelihood. So yeah, no, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There's been parts that I didn't like, you know, I remember early on, I, I was used to make, um, and that, so that you gauge in yourself, you always have to be monitoring yourself, you know, so I was uh, creating herbal tea blends for my community in my store. And this was back in there, again, it's the early 1970s. So there was no tea blends out there. Even celestial seasons hadn't been introduced at that time. I remember working in my store and Mo Siegel, who was the founder of Celestials, which is a very big tea company, he sent me a little uh, bag of this tea called Red Zinger, right? <laughs> and at, was just asking me my opinion of, of course, we thought it was fabulous because nobody had mixed those herbs together. It was like the first time that you got a hibiscus red, zingy, you know, lemon lemongrass tea. It was fabulous. Um, so this was kind of at the start of all that. So I, my partner at that time, a really good friend of mine named Drake Sadler, he was uh, selling astrological calendars at the time. He was a wonderful astrologer. 
So he, um, one day said, I, he was going to sell his, his astrology calendars, you know, it's the fall of the year. He said, I'll take some of your tea blends with me, you know? And he would call me, he was just driving up and down the coast. He'd call me and say, oh my God, we've got an order for five more bags, which is nothing, right? But then it was like five bags. And so we, we ended up starting this company called Traditional Medicinals, which grew to be the largest uh, tea company, uh, medicinal tea company in the country. I think it still is. But after a few years of running that business, I discovered I didn't like it. I, did, I love the business. I love traditionals. Um, but I didn't like being, it was growing big. It was becoming a big business. So, you know, I could see that it required me to be more of a business person that I wanted to be. And so that's another thing you have to monitor because I think loving what you're doing is really critical so that you can actually look back and say, I never worked much in my life. Um, it was all pleasure, you know, it was all purposeful for me. So that, so that business I did step out of because I didn't really love running a big herb business. I liked running my little small business where I could have one-on-one -on -one contact with people. You know, I could see the teas I was selling where they were going. And um, so, so I think all I'm sharing there is that, you know, you monitor yourself, the parts that you love. I mean, of course, in every business, you're going to have to do things that you don't love, but on the whole, you need to love what you're doing and feel really great about it. So I was able to intentionally hand that business off. Drake loved running the business and he just did, has done, he has done an incredible job with it for the last 50 years, right? <laughs> nice, that's awesome. Yeah. And then when did the books come in? I think when I first moved to, uh, uh, to when I first moved to Vermont. So that was like around, I think the first book I published was in 1993. So I'd been here a few years. I was just so busy when I, when I was in California because I was running businesses, the herb school, I was traveling, I was, I'd started my international trips. I was parenting, you know, there was just a lot going on. But when I moved to Vermont, the first couple of years, um, I wasn't doing a lot. It was new to me and I was kind of like just getting to know the land and getting to know the herbs. And I've had a book in my, my mind. I really wanted to write a, a deep, a, a kind of a more comprehensive book on women's health because there really wasn't any, any well, Susan Weed had written a beautiful book, uh, but it was really the only book out there that was on women's health specifically. And when I was working in my herb store, I mean, I had a lot of men customers come in, but primarily it was women who came in. And I had, I just had seen over this, I'd been running that store for 18 years at that point. And I had just seen these herbs work for so many issues that weren't really addressed in any of the books. And so I wanted to cover that in, in this book. So I wrote that book in 1993. And then I just kept writing. <laughs> My publishers would ask me to write. Mostly it was they would invite me to write another book. Um, and so I just kept writing books. I'm sort of done with writing their books. <laughs> yeah. What was your, what was your create, is, was it a creative writing process, do you feel like? Or was it more like, I mean, is it more along the lines of textbook only or? Oh, well, I think it's a combination. But so the first one, the one it was called Healing, uh, Herbal Healing for Women. That one had probably the most creative writing, you know, it's still kind of my original writing style. Okay, it was coming out of it right before there was a big wave of herb books 
So the publisher, it was a big publisher that published that Simon and Schuster. And, you know, they didn't, they just let it be what it was, which I think is beautiful. So it still has, it's still one of my favorite books, right? Because it has kind of that floral writing and it has some more philosophy in it. And then after that, um, the books were, they, there's always a little bit of creative, you know, storytelling and a little bit about my life or working with my grandma and stuff. But most of it, most of my books are practical books about using herbs. So that's always been kind of my mission is like teaching people how to use herbs at home as a home medicine, not in place of modern medicine by any means. I have huge respect for allopathic medicine, but as an adjunct to it, you know, as a, as a, um, uh, as another system of healing that sometimes is more appropriate than going to the doctors, you know, for lots of different situations or as an adjunct system of healing to work in conjunction with what your doctors are recommending, ideally with their knowledge, of course. So, um, so, so my books kind of reflect that. They're practical, you know, like I think probably my bestseller is um, Medicinal Herbs, A Beginner's Guide. You know, there's one that's on everyday health and wellness and recipes for well-being. So they're all, so it was far less of a creative writing project. And in fact, that was one of the things that started happening is I feel like I was a creative writer at one time, but I've, I've written so many herb books, I'm not sure that I have cre creativity in me anymore. <laughs> I used to be able to write these beautiful letters and stuff, and now it's like, oh, it also <laughs> could be my age. You know, I'm in my 70s, so it could just be an age thing. I don't know. <laughs> um, so now, <clears throat> I mean, I'm partners with Haley. Haley has known you for years. She's um, one of your biggest fans <laughs> and I hers <laughs> and uh you know she practices herbalism uh and and um and so I get to learn sort of from the outside perspective and uh I would say that you know back to the like the adjunct element of what herbalism is to the allopathic medicine is like herbalism is more subtle and this is just my my viewpoint on it. I, I would say that herbalism seems like it's a more subtle element, but it's a like a it, it does less harm over time than say like pharmaceuticals. Um, the allopathic medicine is like this is what is it's great for like when something needs to happen right now, you know, like with immediacy, with like okay, we need to take out a spleen or we needed to do you know whatever. But, um, you know, herbalism can be the thing that makes it so that your spleen doesn't need to be taken out. Would you say that that's like close to accurate? That's, or? Um, that's, that's a really good, a good description. I, I would want to say that herbalism isn't always subtle. For instance, take just a few grains of cayenne. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. How about, how about a cup of seta? Take a cup of seta, uh, you know, or yeah. So they're not always subtle, actually. Do you want to hear a funny story really quick? Okay. Yes, I do. On the not subtleness of herbalism. Uh, well, one of uh, Haley's, Haley's and my first dates, we were out. We were going out for a night on the town and I had some like uh, some muscle cramps or something. And she recommended that I uh, take some magnesium. And I mean, magnesium is <laughs> not an herb, but so she's like, yeah, take this. And she gives me a bunch. And um, you know, we just we just met recently, and uh, half an hour later, I was in the bathroom, and we were staying at this hotel, and it was like a tiny little room 
and the bathroom's right there <laughs> and I'm just in the bathroom like mortified of what's happening and Haley's out on the bed just <laughs> laughing hysterically <laughs> that was uh that was that, yeah not subtle um, <laughs> effects of nature on your body can definitely not be subtle yeah so but how but I think what the difference is is that definitely allopathic medicine is is the most amazing system that we have for life-threatening situations yeah. you know it was kind of designed it's often described like it was kind of designed really for the battle right so for things like accidents and wounds and you know life-threatening infections um allopathic medicine is remarkable for third degree burns you know when people have been burned all over their bodies I really don't know any herbs that would come close to what allopathic medicine can do, or you know, when you have severe breaks, et cetera. So in those situations, you know, so this is why we need many systems of medicine. It's not just between, it's not just allopathic medicine and herbs, it's you know, it's massage, it's body work, it's energetic work, it's psychotherapy, you know, you have this whole spectrum. But in the way our system is set up, is that you know, there's one that really dominates, and that really shouldn't be because that one can dominate in a certain area, like in these life-threatening situations, but for chronic illnesses, you know, when you have chronic patterns of, of, um, of uh, unhealth, disease in your body, allopathic medicine is not good for that, so good, right? It's good at suppressing symptoms, but suppressing those symptoms also drive, often drives that chronic issue deeper. It makes it worse, actually, long-term. You may not be suffering as much, which can be a good thing, but the underlying issue is not being addressed. Plants are usually working because they're comprised of thousands of chemicals. So we're talking here whole plant medicine, not single isolates. We're talking about real plant medicine. Um, they're working on the whole body. So I think when you met, when you were talking about selling that sometimes the effects can be slower. And I would say definitely with things like chronic illness, you it might take three or four months before you started to note a real difference. But the difference is, Go, reaching the underlining foundations of what the imbalances might be. And it's also, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier because we've, we've survived in relationship, we've developed in relationship to the plants, right? In so many levels. I mean, no matter what you eat, whether you're a raging carnivore or an omnivore or a flexivore, every food chain starts with plants. The cows you're eating are eating plants. So it's just and so, you know, really, it's not just on that spiritual level, it's on an actually physical cellular level. Those plants come into us and they work, you know, they work on that physical level. We were talking about, you know, tar their pathways, how they target because of the chemical constituents. They're also working in this innate way, you know, that has to do with life connecting with life. Um, and even if we didn't have any explanations about it at all, none, over thousands of years, and this is where that empirical, empirical evidence comes in, we see that these plants do this. They have a long history of being able to, to help people with chronic illness. And when I say help, it doesn't always mean that that chronic illness is cured, but sometimes, yeah, sometimes it just, you're able to manage it much better. Um, you're able to function much better. So, and then the other place where I think herbalism is superior actually, so, I think treating chronic illness, oftentimes you have to work with both allopathic and herbal medicine, because I mentioned that allopathic medicine can manage the symptoms. Sometimes that's necessary. And herbal medicine can deal with those underlying foundational issues, but also in everyday health, you know, just 
keeping healthy and managing your everyday owies, like those bee stings and those cuts and those wounds and those not life-threatening infections, you know, those headaches that aren't going to send you to the hospital, you know, all of that, or home medicine. I mean, that's what people practiced for the entire history of humanity until a hundred years ago, right? And, you know, knowing what to do for any of those things, people have lost that skill. We're seeing it regain now, you know, where people go, oh, you know, I can take a cabbage leaf poultice or a salt poultice or herb, herbal tea for my indigestion, you know, and see it work wonders. So, and that pharmacy, that, that pharmacy is oftentimes just in our backyard, you know, what's those weeds that are growing that we mentioned or in the kitchen in your, in your spice cabinet. So, yeah. Did that yeah. answer that? <laughs> I think it did. I think it did really well. Um, I think uh, it would be a good time to go to the question section. You ready for that? Okay. 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 So these are the four questions that I've asked everybody uh, who's been on the podcast this, this season. Um, the first question is, what was a breakthrough moment for you when, and I'll frame it like when you as an herbalist, you as like, when you really kind of like stepped into your, into your own as, as like the full version that you are today. Like, was there, was there one breakthrough moment where there are a couple things that happened? Well, I think that it's been, I think it's been, uh, especially because I've been doing this for so many years now, like at least, at least 60 something years, right? Because I started when I was really young. I opened my store when I was like 21. So that's like over 50 years ago. I, so I would say that there's been several breakthrough moments, you know, through that time. But really, I want to say one of the first things, one of the times that I really remember that stuck out that I can remember as clear as the day it happened is when I was in my late teens, I was around 18 I, or 19, I spent a lot of time backpacking. So this is my late teens and my early 20s, a lot of time backpacking in the wilderness by myself a lot of the times. And then when I had my little son, Jason, he used to be on my backpack and we backpacked together. So on one of those trips, and I was, so I was in my, around my late teens, I would, I'd been in the woods for a couple of weeks and I remember this as if it was, as I said, as if it was yesterday. And I was, I was um, under the big, so this, I was up in the Pacific Northwest. We had those big, beautiful fir forests, right? And I saw on the fir needles, these dew, the dew drops, right? Just hanging, you know, it's probably been raining or misty how it is so often in those forests. And I remember getting down on my hands and knees and going underneath the plant and opening my mouth and letting that dew drop fall in my mouth. And it was just that, you know, it was like having this revelation where that dew drop just revibrated through my being. Um, and it was like, so it's hard to explain it because it was such a simple thing, but it really just connected me so deeply with the spirit of the plants, just that dewdrop on my tongue. And there's a whole system of medicine that was developed in the 1930s uh, and 1940s by a, a very prominent English physician named Dr. Bach. He was an allopathic and a homeopathic practitioner, but he got frustrated because he felt like he wasn't really addressing what the underlying issues were. He was he had a, a crisis in his in his work, and he we might be called a mental breakdown even today, you know. And 
he stopped his work suddenly and went out to the countryside in Wales where he grew up. And he spent several years just hiking and he developed a system of, of healing that became well known internationally. It's actually known all around the world called the flower essences, right? Well, I hadn't even heard of the flower essences at that time. I didn't really learn about them until I opened up my earth school. You know, it was one of the courses that we offered. Um, but that's what happened for me. I had that transformation with that essence of that. I think it was like a Douglas fir. I don't remember the exact tree, but I'm pretty sure it was a Douglas fir um, where it just transformed me. You know, I kind of traveled through it and every fiber in my being opened up to what these magnificent plants had to offer us. So nobody ever had to tell me about the spiritual nature of plants. I got it in that drop and that impacted my entire work with plants. And of course, as I grew older, I studied with shamans and native elders and indigenous people in many parts of the world. And, and um, that just confirmed what that pine drop, <laughs> what that dew drop from that pine tree, or excuse me, that Douglas fir told me. So that was a groundbreaking moment. But yeah, I think they've been, there's been so many of them for me, but that's, that really jumped out. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Powerful. I like the visual there of the the light coming through the the trees yeah, and, that's right the light coming through the trees and of course the light refracting through that dew drop doing that's like right. such cool stuff off of it yeah. like that. um okay great now question number two now flow state is the concept of being like in the zone um you know time kind of changes shape and and you just uh are in like a pure being state now do you have a, I guess my, the question is, uh, what is your favorite flow state moment that you've experienced? Uh, is there anyone that state. stands out or, or just in general? I know gardening gets me into a really cool flow. <laughs> so you mean just like a, a particular example when I felt that was, was happening? Sure. I mean, I think it happens a lot, right? When you're in nature, it just sort of nature, once you walk off your, you know, whatever current thoughts are in your head, and you're able to empty all that out and then be present. You just enter the flow and you lose time and you go into soft focus. Everything becomes very, you're seeing everything, but it's all very soft focused around you. And then and then you get all that magic, right? So the little mushrooms pop up and you see the, you know, mushrooms you've been hunting for, they kind of call you, you know, the little chicken of the woods or the, you know, the beautiful cauliflower mushrooms or, you know, they just, that's happened so many times when I'm just walking in the woods and it, I always, takes me a while. It's not like I just step in and then my mind is empty and in the flow and I have to walk. I usually, it's walking, you know, if I walk long enough, I leave behind my thoughts. And once I leave behind my thoughts, I'm present. I'm really present with where I'm at. And then, and then it's like, I can hear the plants speaking and how they usually speak to me. So I always like to remind people plants have many languages, right? Very seldom do they speak in English. You don't usually hear them that way. It's usually by light, sound, movement, just inner, like a sense of something other. So usually when I'm walking, I just start to get all that energy coming at me. And I get lots of things when I'm in that space. It's probably the place where I get all my creativity and, you know, even those healing, like when you're contemplating, what is this that person needs? You know, you've done the hour and a half intake with them and you're pondering and you go for a walk and it's just 
right there, right? It just comes to you. So that's, I think, what you mean, right? When you say when you're in the flow. Um, I would say it always, it happens the most when I'm with nature. Um, I don't think it happens too much when I'm in my four walls or, you know, sitting over my desk and stuff trying to figure things out. It's usually when I just go for a walk and, and spend time with nature, which I try to do a lot of. It's important to my life, actually. And I got so busy for so many years teaching people about how to recognize plants and how to use plants and traveling that I wasn't really spending enough time in nature, just letting nature nurture me. And I started to feel very disconnected from that flow or that spiritual place that you're speaking about. So I, I would always describe it, you know, people always say, you know, watch out for those people who talk to themselves. I would say, oh no, that's a really smart thing when you talk to yourself. You have to be very mindful when those voices stop talking to you. You know, when you're not getting your inner guidance, that's the danger part. Yeah. And so when I couldn't hear them anymore or they were coming in really cloudy and I couldn't read the messages that I figured I'm not in my flow. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, like definitely something to be aware of. And I, I like that you, uh, you, you said like unload the top, you know, the thoughts in your mind. Um, I'm kind of visualizing like your conscious mind being like the top level. And then like, you can get deeper and deeper down into your being and like step one, when you get at, or when you're trying to get into the flow is like unload the top layer that way it's like not even there anymore. And then you settle into like the deeper essences. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's this, there's all this work. It's beautiful work with sacred plant medicine. Not, I'm not talking here about the hallucinogens. It's just working with plant medicine um, and doing it in a really conscious manner. So where you are you know taking your tea maybe even going out and digging up the dandelion really consciously making your tea with it and then drinking it really consciously that helps to um, move you into those very deep places in yourself you know and help you empty empty your mind because your your attention now is being you know really directed towards this other being and that there's a whole there's a wonderful book um I forget the name of it actually. It's written by a woman who lives in Ireland, but it's a, it came out just a couple of years ago. I'm, so I'll have to give you the name of it because it's a wonderful book for people who want to work with these plants in a sacred manner, it, which is a way of emptying that mind frame, you know, so that you're just in a receptive place. But, uh, you know, so often people think of that when they're thinking of those, they're thinking of sacred plant medicine being a really strong medicine, uh, like the psychedelics and stuff. But there are many herbalists who are working with plants that are our everyday plants, but using them to take them to a similar place through, through conscious intention. Yeah, just through relationship. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it is. Well, and the, it's neat how uh, the breath, okay, so like with meditation, your breath is, uh, can be a guide. And then, yes. um, you know, if you're sitting with tea, and you pour the tea there's like the aromas that are just naturally coming out and then you know if you sit there with it in your hands then you can feel the warmth of the cup and it that's tuning you into your physical sensation and then you breathe in and it like you can feel the air you know the essence of the tea going up into your nostrils and down into your lungs there's all this like um like real connection to the present moment that's exactly uh, so cool 
Yeah, that's it. It is so cool. You know, there's a little volume. I used to have all of my students reading. It was called The Book of Tea. And it's a it's a written by a Japanese man. And it's about tea ritual. And it's very much like that. You know, it's, it's designed around the Japanese tea ceremony. But really, it could be around any tea ceremony. And it's really about the meditation of taking tea and quieting our raging minds, right? Racing, raging minds, quieting them so that the, you know, true connection can really happen. And you can just do that with exactly the way that you just described with any tea that you're drinking, actually. <laughs> cool. Uh, yeah. yeah, there you go. Um, okay, next question. Question three is, what is your advice to aspiring creatives? Now, I'm using creatives, the word as like capital C creatives. This is a, a very loose definition, you know, people from all backgrounds um, who are creative and like trying to make a life out of their creativity and their, their passion. Just never give up, be persevering and hardworking, really. You know, I mean, I, I think that people forget that, you know, dreams do come true. You have to work really hard for them. And especially if you are, yeah, if you're, you know, wanting to be successful in the world, uh, you have to really be willing to put the work in and also really believe in your dream. You also have to be wise in the sense that in areas that you may not, so you may be tremendously creative, but if you don't have a good business sense and, or, and aren't willing or want to study to have a business sense, you can't really be, here I'm, when I'm thinking of successful, you know, to creatives, that's kind of what we're, I'm also looking at how to be successful in the world with what you're creating. So if you, if that in part means wanting to create good livelihood with that, and you don't have a good business sense, you have to have at least enough sense to be able to hire somebody who has good business sense. Um, otherwise, you'll be working three times as hard as you need to for that kind of success. I mean, but you can be absolutely creatively successful without having the business aspect if you don't care about making a livelihood from it. So, and in that case, I would just say, just follow your dream, never give up because sometimes it takes a long time. Um, and it's very easy to look at other people's successes and think, oh, you know, and to feel jealous how it may have happened to them, you know. But truthfully, it's different for every single person. Some people have to work really long and other times it's just timing, it happens quicker. But I've never seen anybody, I've, and I've met a lot of creative people in my life actually, who haven't just stuck with their dreams, who hasn't been successful, you know, whatever that idea means for them. So I have, I kind of was going in two directions there. You know, one is just your willingness to work really hard at what you want to do, what your, what your dream is what your creative dream is you you know very seldom does it happen to people where they don't have to work hard on it on some level and I think I stress that because I think a lot of people actually forget what it's like to work really hard I I have to say that you know I mean I am really successful and I worked really unbelievably hard at it not not necessarily to be financially successful but to carry my dream out into the world I basically didn't have much of a personal life, which was okay with me because I loved what I did so much. But, you know, I pretty much did, I feel like I signed my name, the plants asked me to sign their name on the, you know, the dotted line and I did it, I worked for them. And basically whenever I had a dream or a thought or an idea, 
that just kind of came through me, I jumped on it and would make it happen. And I wasn't really a good business person in those early years. And I wasn't smart enough to ask somebody to help me. So I lost tons of money. You know, I ran an herb store for 18 years. I don't think it ever made maybe just barely enough to pay people. And most of the people who worked for me were doing an exchange for herbs or classes or whatever. You know, it was, it took me a long time to realize that, you know, that in order to be successful and be able to, you know, address some of those things we were talking about earlier, in order for me to do my job better and to be able to take care of my family better and also to help my community better, I had to get this part together. And so I did get help, you know, people who were much better at running businesses, et cetera. So I think that's a, a very important thing for creative people. You can't be good at everything, right? You're, it's like a lot of times people who are really creative are not going to be necessarily creative in business, the business world. Um, and so hiring people, teaming up with partners, which is a whole other thing you have to be very mindful of, but partnerships can be really good or they can be out. So, you know, kind of being clear on those kinds of things. There's, there's all kinds of guidelines for that. Yeah, but just, you know, believe in yourself. I think that's the, the hardest thing to do is to believe it. You know, I think maybe even more believing in yourself is believing in what you want to give birth to, right? It's believing in that creative vision that wants to come through you. Um, and for me, that maybe made it really easy because it was not about me. It was always about the plants, serving the plants, wanting to bring yeah. the plants. So I think that can be true of your art. It can be true anything that you're creating you know it's this creative urge to want to bring something out to the world that can really impact it in a good way um so you just have to really believe in it and trust and work hard there you go nice perfect that's i know great. it's more complicated than that but it, i would say that's the foundation of it yeah i mean that's the driving force there and everything else can kind of be figured out uniquely yeah. to whatever one's one's own path um all right now question four this is the last one of part one what's your definition of art art oh well huh <laughs> well it's definitely i mean i my initial thing is to say that everything that's beautiful but honestly art isn't always beautiful i mean there's art is art can be very very uh uh yeah it can make you pissed off and angry you know it can be incredible art that does that it can, it can make you think or you know and travel in places that you don't normally want to go so it's definitely not defined by beauty but it's i mean everything in everything can be defined as art i think right just life light is artful and i don't know really that's a hard one for me it's like, um, I mean, you could look at the whole world as a, as a incredible creation of, of art. Maybe that's what art is. It's creation, you know, and everything is in creation and happening. I'll have to think about that a little more to have an intelligent answer, but I would just say maybe it's just creation. Art is creation and it involves everything you know like when a volcano first goes off I mean it is stunningly beautiful but it's also incredibly destructive it can you know kill every plant and person in town in its way 
and yet it is creating, it's a creative force that it is art. I mean, it's even creating art that you can look at visually um, and then art grows out of it. You know, all the creative forms of plants that come out that are looking really differently. So it's just a creative force, I think. What do you think it is? Well, I mean, it's so many different things. Um, oh, what, what, I, <laughs> what I really like about your answer there is that you don't limit it to human creation. Oh yeah, no. Actually, when I was thinking of everything beautiful, I'm looking out at nature and going, you know, look at this incredible beauty that nature creators created for us. Yeah. Yeah. But we're part of nature. So what humans create also is, you know, can be incredibly artful. Yeah. But, yeah. but most of the art that humans are created from in one form or another is created through nature. Right. Yeah, we're 100% connected. Yeah. <laughs> We are. I like that answer. Um, okay, well, that's basically the end of part one. Can you tell everybody where? Uh, well, first, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for taking your time out um, and talking with me and sharing your wisdom with everybody. And um, I just want to tell you that I know firsthand that you're incredibly inspiring to so many people. Um, you know, as an example of uh, the way to go after a life of herbalism and like make things happen and, uh, you know, how to work hard and go after your dreams. So kudos to you big time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. And so can you tell us uh, where people can find your books or where they can support the, the herbalism cause in general or where they can connect with you? Well, great. Well, I think that, so we have a website. I don't do a lot of teaching anymore, traveling. Mostly I've been working from home and I run a home study course, which I've been actually running for 35 years, I think. <laughs> it's been at least 35 years. I think I started in 1981 was the first edition of it. But anyway, so I still offer that course. It's gone, it's both a printed course and it's also online. Um, and we also sell our books online, though you can get them cheaper at Amazon. <laughs> you can, but just so people know that. But anyway, you can also get them from us. And so uh, it's um, at the scienceandartofherbalism.com. I think it might also be under my name too, rosemarygladstone.com. I also always encourage anybody who's interested in plants at, in, in any form at all, whether it's through gardening or just their beauty or their medicine, is to get involved with with plant organizations, there's so many of them, you know, um, but one that we formed back in the 19, let's see, early 1990s, actually 1994, was United Plant Savers, which is probably the work I'm most proud of, you know, that I've done, one of, one of the things, because it really is an organization that's become a national organization and an international model for conservation of medicinal plants. Our focus is really on native medicinal plants and what we can do to help preserve those for future generations of plant lovers, yes, but more importantly for the earth itself, you know, how, how we can make sure and ensure that these really important plants that have played a long history in human health and plant health, animal health are still on this planet because so many of them were being over harvested or else disappearing because of habitat destruction. And really there was no voice for the medicinal plants. We became a very loud, strong, clear voice. And United Plant Savers is 
really been an amazing organization. So um, people can find out more about that by going to unitedplantsavers.org, I think, yeah. Cool. Yeah, and then there's a wonderful website called Herb Rally um, that has, it's really great. It's run by a good friend of mine, Mason Hutchinson. And Mason, what he, Mason has done is he's kind of become a, like an organizer for all the different classes and organizations and events that are going on in this country about herbs. So you can find out about if there's a, you know, event, an online event or an in-person event through Herb Rally. And then we have a really uh, national organization called the American Herbalist Guild, which is a, that's an organization for herbalists who are primarily practitioners, but also people interested in being herbalists. And they have a tremendous amount of resources. So those are all good ways to get more involved in, cool. uh, yeah, in the plant world. <laughs> all, you know, we're so involved in the plant world if you just are breathing you're involved in the plant world you know it like that in itself is the most remarkable thing you know you just stand and breathe and you're just breathing in plant energy literally you couldn't live without that breath so even that's fun and then when you breathe out guess what you're nurturing all the plants around you <laughs> that in itself is a great meditation right <laughs> that is yeah um okay so uh that's the end of part one can you give us one last bit of wisdom and it doesn't have to be about plants at all it can just be wisdom in general oh well oh i would just say you know the earth feels pretty shaky to a lot of people right now and when things get shaky the very best thing we can do is root deep you know it's to just anchor and not don't let ourselves get shaky and how we root deeply is by remembering who we are in relationship to the earth. So just, you know, it's like when the when the ship starts to sink, everybody runs to the sinking end, right? When we really need to start paddling hard and do our part. And we do that by, by self-nourishing. We really do that by deep rooting. And so um, this isn't a time for us to be shaky. It's not a time for us to give up hope. It's a time to dig deep and the earth needs us step up for and root deeply and to take really good care of ourselves and our family and our community so that we can do our work here to help stabilize. So that's what I'd say, you know. <laughs> that's great. I love that. All right, we'll be right back. Again, this podcast is brought to you by High Ground Coffee, an adventure coffee brand with a new twist on brewing coffee, wherein you steep coffee like it's a tea. You just drop a packet in hot water and you go. It's the newest way to brew coffee and it's awesome. Use coupon code TAYLOR at checkout for 15% off. Visit them at myadventurecoffee.com. That's myadventurecoffee.com. And we're back. All right, part two. Rosemary, how are you feeling right now? Well, I'm feeling really happy, actually. I'm having a wonderful conversation with a very wonderful person who I adore and talking about things I love, plants. And I'm also sitting here looking out at Lake Champlain on a beautiful sunny autumn day. So yeah, and I was working in the garden earlier, so that felt really good. So yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. Do you mean at this moment how I'm feeling? Yeah. Yeah, at this moment, I'm feeling good. And right. I really note when I feel good right now because I've had some really rough spots over these last couple of years. So I pay close attention to when I know I'm really rooted deeply and feeling really good. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. cherish those moments. Yes. That's that duality of life right there. Yeah, it is. Um, all right, so then we're going to go into part two with our little game we've been playing here, the questions or the concepts. So again, you've got one path we can go down, which is the questions. And I'm going to give you one. You'll, you'll choose one question and that'll set us off. Or we can go the concepts route. And I've got a special set of questions for you and a special set of concepts, especially oh. for you. So um, would you like to go for another question or would you like to go for a concept? It does sound like one of those game boards, right? Right. Okay. So my question is, what do I win? No. <laughs> there <laughs> um, you go. <laughs> I'm going to go for concepts because I'm not really even quite sure what you mean by concepts. So what does, I'll go for that, the unknown. Okay, cool. I'm excited for this. Um, so the concepts, they're more general. So I just have like, I'm going to throw these concepts at you and you can just uh, whatever strikes your fancy, like whatever you want to talk about, you can go. You can only choose one of these concepts and then we'll go that route. So they are endangered species, creating community, and then the 60s and 70s. <laughs> that would be fun, but I'm not going to choose that one. <laughs> that would be great fun. And probably the most wild good stories, but we'll save that for another time. Um, I think I'm going to talk about creating communities, you know, oh, right. um, even though my great love is uh, at risk plants, you know, I'm, and I've worked really hard on that, but I think just because creating communities is, is just, yeah, I think it's important. So we'll talk about that. They're all important, but that one's, yeah. Perfect. That route. Cool. All right. So creating community, what do you, what do you think about that? Well, I, I mean, again, when I look at plants, all plants live in community, they thrive in community and generally very diverse. The more diverse the community is, the more healthier the plant communities are. So, and that has been an incredible reflection for me in how to live my life. Um, and so one of the things, I think I might've mentioned this early on, one of the things I love so much about working with the plants is working also with the plant communities that I've met. And at this point, it used to be in the 60s and the 70s, it was a very small group of people, right? I mean, there, it wasn't that, that wasn't certainly the only plant communities. There were ethnic communities, there were the uh, indigenous communities, but, but in my world, I was working with a small group of people, right? Uh, who were interested in plants. And I would say even across the United States, if you were to collect all the people, there were some elders, and there was pretty much new everybody who was working in the different areas with their plants. Um, so it wasn't really large, but even then it was important to connect. I, I felt that even then that somehow we needed to come together and become more of a voice and more of a family. And that has really, I think, influenced the way that the North American herbal community has grown really, our communities. Um, so, and, and I have to say that working with these people through all these years and the circles have changed and grown and metamorphosed and become more diverse, certainly, thank goodness. Um, but, you know, working with them has been as pleasurable as working with the plants. I find as much joy actually, um, just because the, the, community, the, the plant communities are just people who are drawn to plants always have this sense of wanting 
to be conscious of the earth and helping the earth, helping each other. There just seems to be a high level of consciousness in people who are interested in, in the earth and healing and plants. So I, I really love that. Um, yeah. Yeah, and when you have a community that is like-minded and has similar ideals and values and experience, then it, you can have these like really amazing dynamic conversations and you know explorations into concepts and you don't have to like get, you don't have to set up like the baseline because the baseline's already there. You're already, like, um, it's fun uh, like talking with other artists, you know, uh, about art stuff because like we already have, we have a similar background knowledge base that we can like draw from and then like, you know, any sort of connotations or jokes, like they land, you know, and, uh, and so then you can, <laughs> up to like some cool higher level things um yeah i've been i've been developing this concept for uh like an artist retreat or like a, a, a creatives retreat and one part of it is a, about building community and i was seeing community as like three elements for us it's like there's the the community that's like the people that are interested in what we're doing and then there's also the community of um, like the, the contemporaries, like the comrades in the whole thing, other artists. And then there's the community of people who've been there and done that. So there's like the, you know, the elders in the situation. Um, and so there's like different parts to, to one's own community. Oh, they're absolutely, I mean, that's what comprises community is multi parts, you know, in this case, you're, you're breaking it down into three, but even within those elements, there's going to be uh, so much different energy that comes in. I mean, that, and, you know, that's when we were talking about, like, community is comprised of, when we look at the plants, comprised of many different elements of plants that come together, and the greater that diversity, the greater that thought process, the, it, oftentimes it creates agitation, or, you know, it's not always harmonic, but, but it creates a dynamic life force, and with the herbal community, in, in, what I've noticed is that we're not so much like-minded, by the way, I mean, the ways herbalists think in so many different ways. So there's, and some of it in just concrete things like, you know, some people really believe that it's more academic and some people believe it's more spiritual and, you know, and you have people who wanna make it legalized and have it be sanctioned. And so there's a lot of diverse mindfulness going on when we hold those gatherings, but there's a like-heartedness. There's this love of the earth and a love of plants and of wanting to help one another that unites us. So even when the mind is like engaged in dialogue and sometimes not always pleasantly, like I've seen, you know, it's like sibling bickering, but bickering about things that really are meaningful to them. Um, there's always this place of caring, you know, that there's a, the intention is because we all love this art that we're doing together. Um, and yeah, and you know, it's just, it would be hard to be anything without having a community, right? How could you be an artist without having a community? Uh, people who appreciate the art you're doing, people who are doing the art, people who have done it. And, and, and it's the same in herbalism, though I would say that it's not, like when we started hosting, so we started early on hosting these retreats and that was the way that we built community. We'd all come together and this was back, you know, the first herbal retreats were back in the early 1970s. So we would camp together, we'd make meals together, we would cook together and then we would 
take classes together and we kind of all grew up and these circles grew and they went across the country and, and they started having a meadow in the Midwest and in the East Coast. But there was this element that was all the same of people coming together, learning and sharing from each other um, and just being together, you know, and not just being together around herbs, but music and dancing and, you know, doing ceremonies and stuff. So, and those conferences have actually spread over into Europe now. So they do them in England, very much based in the same ways that we started out in California. Um, but, but there was never really onlookers. So even those people who are new were coming because they wanted to learn to be practitioners, even when they thought, or learn not practitioners, but to be herbalists. So even if they thought they were coming because they had a health problem, for instance, and they wanted maybe to learn, go to a class that was on women's health and learn how to deal with some health issue, they would become engaged almost always. This is how herbalism spread in this country. It was like these gatherings started off with being, I think the first one we had, we had 50 people that first weekend, Rainbow End Ranch in Sonoma County. It was like 1976. And we, they were, it was so successful, we started doing them, um, you know, the, uh, every season, like the, the solstices and the equinoxes. Um, and they just grew exponentially. You know, they grew to be from 50 people to 100 and then 500 people coming. Was, and then, as I said, they spread out across the country. And, you know, we were, the women's conferences we were hosting here in New England were up to like eight or 900 people. The women's herbal events down in the Southeast were like at 1400 people, you know, it's like the one in Northern California, I think they have like, they do it two weekends a year. And I think they have like five or 600 women come. And there's of course all the co-ed ones too. I'm just mentioning the women's conferences because I loved all the urban events, but I really love those women's herb conferences. But they created these remarkable communities of people, you know, and um, that not only fed each other, those circles that gathered, but also went out and fed the bigger community, you know. So those inner those circles became interlocking in their communities. These people would go out and start herb stores and start their own classes and start their own little gatherings. So that's how we've seen these communities just radiate out. I feel I feel those conferences played an enormous part in the way that herbalism spread in this country and also in building community within the circle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been to a couple of retreats and things and they're, they're just so cool how they, they're just these little jam packed time periods where so much happens and you meet all these people and you learn all this stuff. And you're like, I mean, just by saying yes to something like that and then going, you yeah. just like open yourself up to the possibilities of like, I'm in for whatever. Um, let's see where this goes. And yeah. you end up like, uh, yeah creating connections and bonds that are that, that sometimes can last a lifetime and yeah. um yeah it's really cool and that community is really what can help sustain you through like challenging times or uh like if you don't know something i'm sure that you know you can call on one of your herbalist friends and say like bounce ideas off of them and yeah it's totally true you know it's been these last two years with covid people haven't been able to meet in person and they they've taken the I think very creatively, they've taken the conferences online and they, they don't do the same thing. Of course, you're not standing there in a big circle holding hands and all singing together and you know going to the Emporium and buying herbal products and going to classes together, but they really are inc incredible in the sense that they still 
connect people. And in, tra- in truth, like one of the things I found, uh, and I'm not a computer person, but I found that these online conferences, what they're doing is they're, because people can join all around the world. So they're becoming very international too. You know, they're really gathering people and, and people recognize it's not the same, but it's definitely a really good tool for this time. They're talking just like this, you know, and they can see each other and different people come up and you can engage with the teacher and ask questions and stuff. So yeah, there's been some, I think what'll happen after this virus is over is that I'm hoping anyway, there'll be hybrids where people will still be gathering, of course, because the online does not replace the the, um, actual gathering of people, but also being able to have these conferences online where you're bringing together people who more be, maybe couldn't come, maybe they're, you know, not able to go and, you know, for money reasons or for travel reasons or because they're taking care of children or old people, elderly people, you know, so they can join in these events. And yeah, it's been, it's been pretty awesome to see. Yeah, it's really shown like the strength of what can be done online. Like you said, it doesn't replace it. It's not as good because you can't like be right there with them but yeah for cost wise i mean haley's been taking um some court a bunch of courses with karen sanders oh yeah and, um up in northern california and like she went to one in person a couple of years ago and that was amazing but you can't just like do that all the time and so now she's been like sitting in on all these courses and then she just started one with the um the herbalist in ireland that you recommended um oh was it nikki maybe maybe um I know isn't that great you can study over with a person in Ireland you know and yeah somebody in England yeah I think it's really cool that that part of it is a really it's a gift of COVID actually I mean we probably would have gotten there even without the virus but it really just you know opened this whole uh venue up for people to be able to learn and study with people yeah it was a crash course I think there was a lot of people that probably would have never done it but instead but they had to so it was like so many awkward zoom calls where people didn't know what was going on but everybody's a zoom expert now it's great (laughs) (laughs) yeah um i was wondering if you would tell us like maybe a maybe like one story there was there was a now may this might not be true and maybe there aren't any stories that you have but you might know a band that was called the grateful dead is that that accurate is that true I do yeah well so where the herb school um so when I had my little apothecary uh Rosemary's Garden in Guerneville before it moved to Sebastopol um I had a a friend a customer who would come in and she would have really bad migraines and I would take her home with me and you know help take care of her when she was going through these you know sometimes they'd be two or three days and it turned out we became really good friends her name was Nikki Scully and Nikki Scully was the wife of Rock Scully, who was at that time the manager of the Grateful Dead. I didn't know anything about the Grateful Dead. I mean, I was I was a hippie, but I was more of a backpacking, you know, I was more into Joan Baez and Bob Dylan kind of hippie girl, um, folk music and, you know, crunchy granola and stuff. And so I definitely wasn't into the Grateful Dead and, and LSD at that time. But anyway, Nikki uh, came to the store one day and she said, you know, I've got tickets for us, backstage pass tickets to the Grateful Dead. I, of course, I said, sure, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> so I went with Nikki several times, actually, and, you know, got to listen to the Grateful Dead behind the stage. And and uh, like everybody, I fell in love with their music and the group. And 
Um, and sometimes, oh, and so the other thing is Nikki Scully also owned this beautiful um, small ranch called Emerald Valley. And she was living at that time with her two daughters and Rock, um, her husband at that time. But she wanted to rent it. They were planning to move to Oregon. And I was, I had just started the herb school. I actually had it opened a year and I was renting a, a building in Sebastopol, but I wanted to move it out to the country. So Nikki invited me to, to move it out to the Emerald Valley, which is where it still is. Well, that was kind of the retreat for where the Grateful Dead would go when they were tired of being in the city and all the rock and roll and stuff. They would come up to um, Emerald Valley and it was just this beautiful, peaceful, quiet piece of land in the forest up in Sonoma County, up in this little village called Forestville. And so I always used to say the reason that herb school was so successful because it was, was because people found out that the Grateful Dead would come, right? So we had all these like deadheads who would like travel to the herb school. It actually isn't true, but it made a great story. Um, the school became very popular because it, it was a good school and it was the only school open at that time. But I know that the Grateful Dead was really a drawing card for a lot of people who came. <laughs> <laughs> did you uh, did you get to know any of them personally? No, but we no, I can't really say that. You know, I went out to dinner with them once after, um, which sounds like a really great thing. You know, um, so it was after one of their concerts in San Francisco, and Nikki just I was with Nikki, so she invited me to come have dinner with them. But they were all like you know, they were, had just played music for four hours and they were like also, <laughs> zoning. they were in that flow, right? They were in their flow. And, you know, it was like the funniest dinner. It was like in this Chinese restaurant and they obviously had got, it was in Chinatown in San Francisco. And they obviously had gone there before they had a room upstairs. It was just for them. And it was like, everybody was just sort of eating their food. Nobody was talking because everybody was just, you know, flowing out there. They were, and so it was, so I tell people sometimes just for the fun of it, you know, it's like name dropping big time, which I don't normally do that. I had dinner with the Grateful Dead, um, but really it was probably the most boring dinner I've ever been to. <laughs> and then, like, Nikki, uh, Jerry lived, uh, when Nikki moved to Marin County, she was living there for quite a while and Jerry had a little retreat house there. So I'd see him occasionally when I went there, but I really, it would be stretching it to say that uh, I knew him personally. You know, I was another um, sort of a fan, but I loved the music, the certain, in person, you know, this, it was the best dance music on the planet, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, still is, yeah. It's still great. Yeah. Yeah, um, and then Nikki Scully, you uh, introduced us to her when we went to Egypt um, a couple years back, and then Nikki and Haley talked a lot Oh, wow. Because Nikki was like, a, she was really into like Egyptian culture because the Grateful Dead played there in the 70s. Yes. And then she knew all this like stuff about where to go and what temple to check out. And she oh. told us about the goddess Sekhmet. Sekhmet is like the lion goddess, yeah. lion headed goddess. And there was a temple that was dedicated to her um, at the temple at Karnak. And she gave us like detailed descriptions of where to go once we're in Karnak. Karnak's like a multi like square mile like place where there's all these different ruins from different um, time periods. And so she was like, yeah, you got to go off the beaten path over here to this like little section off the way. There's a um, sycamore tree. And by the sycamore tree, there's going to be this little temple and you go in and there's like still a sculpture. 
all the other ruins all over Egypt, there were no sculptures left. They were taken out and they were put in museums. And we, when we were there, we like had this magical morning and then we talked to some um, security guard and we asked him about Sekhmet temple. And he was like, oh, what? You know about this? And he was like, sure. And he takes us over and right at the front gate, there's like these guards standing there. There weren't guards at these other spots and there was guards. And we look over and there's a tree and we're like, is that a sycamore tree? He's like, oh, sycamore, yeah. And I'm like, okay, cool, we're here. And then we go inside and uh, we like, we get like we have to you know give one guard some money and then we give another guard some money inside and then they take us in and this guy like we like end up standing in this like little tiny room with this big giant beautiful Sekhmet sculpture with the light shining down it was like Egyptian ruins it was like this it was magical and um yeah it was we the guy like did this little uh ceremony with us and it was it was really cool all thanks to Nikki Scully and thank you She's an amazing person, Nikki. I mean, she is, she's written a number of books, like really incredible books on, that, that are a lot about the Egyptian mythology, a lot about healing and journeying and stuff. You know, she's just done some amazing work for certain, yeah. She'd be a fun person for you to interview. Yeah, totally. Maybe we'll uh, reach out to her. All right. Well, cool. Is there anything else you feel like chatting about? I think that's good. It's been all afternoon. (laughs) 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 Thanks for hanging in there. Yeah. Uh, It's nice. uh, This podcast is intended for people to listen to while they're doing whatever creative flow they do. So I wanted it to be like a nice couple hour thing so they can really get into their flow state. So this has been perfect. Awesome. Uh, Well, thanks again for being here. Very much appreciate it. it. Thank you. It's been a wonderful afternoon. I'm glad we could Zoom. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Totally. All right, Rosemary, uh, we'll see you in the future. All right, honey, thank you. Give Haley my love. Well I hope to see you in Vermont. Yep, totally. And that, my friends, was Rosemary Gladstar. What a magical being. Huh? Do you agree? Yeah. She's great. She's been a real pleasure to have gotten to spend time with her and learn from her. And um, yeah, I mean, Haley's done an internship with her. And uh, so Haley's dad has a couple of best friends, like four or five best friends. They call themselves the Mud Hens. And they've been friends since like middle school, elementary school, high school. And uh, Rosemary's husband, Bob, is one of the Mud Hens. So Haley just happened to kind of have her as like a fairy godmother throughout life. And it's been awesome. And so uh, it's really helped Haley along her path as an herbalist and um, learning about things of those natures. And uh, yeah, so I've gotten to go along and, you know, go visit Haley on the farm and uh, spend time with Rosemary at different events and meet Bob. Bob's a wealth of knowledge in a whole new, a whole other way. Um, those two are an amazing pair. They just got done with um, like a bunch of weeks up in, in the north of Maine, and they said that they uh, they didn't see they only saw two people over the course of a couple weeks, and that was like driving past some hunters who were in a truck, and uh, that's the type of life they live. They like hang out on Lake Champlain and garden and 
do amazing things for the plant world and all the communities surrounding it and then they go off into the middle of nowhere for weeks on end and just have a blast but um but yeah i feel like rosemary is an amazing an amazing example of somebody who has blended the worlds of their passion their creative passion and business and it really shows you what you can do if you um if you don't fight that and if you just kind of embrace it as a reality that like the world of business is something that your creative world needs to interface with uh if you want to have any sort of um you know success in terms of like a financial income stance um and a financial income stance is really the thing that's going to help drive it's going to help make everything else possible so um if you can figure out how that works for you you can really make your creativity work and make a life out of it so that was why i really was excited to bring her on the show again this podcast is uh intended to show you the creative listener that you can do whatever you want to do. You just got to figure it out. There's ways. And there's a lot of people who are examples of this. It's very possible. So hope you're doing awesome stuff today. Hope you're being creative and making things, you know, or being whatever you want to be because it's the best way to be, <laughs> you know. Anyway, I think that's it. Cheers. Cheers.